the arbitration round. For long-time listeners, name of the original podcast. But then we decided to start drinking more because I guess law school. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Pino and Policy, this time all about Hong Kong. I'm Drake. I'm here joined by the ever erstwhile Hannah Luzatter and Sophia Freuden. Y'all want to introduce yourselves? Um, First of all, it's not Hannah Luzatter. It's oh. Hannah oh, whoa. Okay. Well, <laughs> news for the rest of the audience. Uh, Hannah got married. Congrats, Hannah. Thank you. She's an actual adult. It's amazing. <laughs> wow. Um, I'm Hannah Cowden. And I uh, recently got married and also recently started law school. Uh, I am the director of networking at Arbitrar and am here on this podcast. Okay. I am Sophia Freuden. I am the editor-in-chief of Arbitrar. I uh, did not just start law school, but I'm about to start graduate school. And uh, I am also here with my friends and some Pilsner. <laughs> I'm Drake again. I'm not going to grad school. And... Uh, I'm here with my friends and a friend called a mason jar full of wine because I'm from Portland and that's what we do here. All right. Fantastic. So introductions away. Um, I'm sure everybody's been hearing about this whole Hong Kong situation. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's almost like uh, at the time of the recording, this is the 11th week of protest and 1.7 million people showed up in Hong Kong in the streets. Mm-hmm. Pretty fun stuff. So for those who are you know, living under a rock or don't really know the history behind all this, Hong Kong's actually in a really interesting position. So one of the things that makes this particular um, wave of protest different is how long it's gone on. So you may or may not recall the 2014 umbrella protests, but those were pretty quickly squashed. These ones have come back and they've been sticking around for almost three months. Now the basic background is this. There was an extradition law that the Beijing regime was trying to push in Hong Kong. This extradition law on the surface, doesn't seem bad. All it would do is allow China to extradite individuals accused of a certain crime from Hong Kong into China for prosecution. Cool. What that really means, though, is in theory, China could go, oh, you're a, you know, a democratic instigator or some near to well that the regime doesn't like. We can rip you right out of Hong Kong and you know, put you through a sham trial and then go off to a concentration camp somewhere. Basically. Right. Now, Hong Kongers saw that as a violation of what they call the Basic Law, which is their essentially their constitution left behind by their former colonial uh, overlords, the, the British. And this was basically seen as a big dust-up. If this law passes at the time, thought was that that's pretty much the beginning of the end when it comes to Hong Kong's uh, relative, uh, I wouldn't say independence, but uh, autonomy within the Chinese system. Now, officially, Hong Kong's supposed to be fully integrated into China by 2047, and so inevitably there was going to be some changes, but this uh, moved a little farther. So, protests started, the bill was eventually tabled for a later date, but the protests have continued with more demands for democracy and uh, autonomy. So that's the basics behind it. There's some more characters, but we can talk more in a bit. Okay, so my uh, initial question is this. Mm. Is Hong Kong going to become more fully part of China? Is that the plan? Well, yeah. So this is where it gets weird. Um, in 97, when it was handed over back to China. So, oh, backstory for people. So Hong Kong um, was technically under lease by the British from China. 
for a 99-year lease. They get to control it. It's this whole separate area. Technically, the lease was on something called the New Territories, which are just north of Hong Kong proper. Hong Kong itself was formally annexed um, years previously. So technically, they didn't have to give it back. But like, oh, we're just going to give you back the suburbs? No. Of course, they're going to give back Hong Kong in the 90s. So they gave it back. It was a fun ceremony, so on and so forth. And what they left behind was, A, the basic law, mm-hmm. right? Um, which gives them their nominal democracy, the whole nine yards, right? And then, B, stipulation that in 50 years, Hong Kong would be fully integrated into China. But in the meantime, that 50-year transition period, there would be uh, one state, two systems. So technically part of China, but they get to have all their democracy, their own courts that are backed by the rule of law. Their courts are actually um, based on British common law, and they're actually respected abroad. Uh, the Economist was writing a lot about that's part of the reason why the stock exchange in Hong Kong is so robust, is that foreign companies can actually trust Hong Kong courts more than the Chinese kangaroo courts they have that are just well, they operate under different rules than ours. And so Hong Kong has also had a very distinct different identity as a result of essentially 100 years of British rule and then the past 20, almost 30 years of, well, not 30, well, eh, it's getting there, um, 20 years of uh, integration with China. Don't give me an existential crisis for saying that the 90s was like 30 years ago. I mean, it kind of almost was. Getting like, there. It's in a year, it'll be 30 years ago. Anyways, so... Um, so the, the thing is, is that, like, I was reading a, a poll today. Um, the Hong Kongers now, uh, the majority of Hong Kongers see themselves as Hong Kongers before being Chinese or a Hong Kong person in China or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's actually the highest amount of Hong Kong identity since literally the handover in 1997. So the big difference is that the original thought Beijing would have is that over time, they'd slowly just see themselves as Chinese and not care. Instead, over the years, their idea that they are an independent, separate system, kind of akin to like Taiwan or whatever, they're Hong Kongers first. They don't even see themselves as Chinese. And that's the thing that's crazy um, to think about is for China, Hong Kong was originally able to have its autonomy because it was so rich and because it was so independent and it was their route to foreign markets. But now Hong Kong has more competition from native Chinese cities, but still has a special status and does not want to play ball with them. Like that's the thing that was a surprise to the Beijing regime was that there would be so much pushback from this law to the point yeah. that the current chief executive, Carrie Lam, is basically under fire constantly. I was going to say, it seems like um, Hong Kong is not really interested in following this plan of reintegrating into, into China. Nope. So that's the thing that's uh, a bit of the dirty secret here. So um, at the time, there was uh, in the 90s, it was very popular to be all about decolonization, like... Literally, the, the Berlin Wall had just fell, and the USSR territories had been broken up. There's tons of handovers, the whole nine yards, right? And so everybody's thought, okay, Hong Kong gets a chance to reintegrate with the homeland, be all great, hunky-dory. Irony is that a lot of those British institutions were actually what allowed them to have their autonomy, and they've actually clung to them more. One of the seminal moments of the uh, protests was about a month ago or so, when uh, protesters broke into um, the legislature, um, defaced all the uh, communist Chinese uh, symbols and flags, mm-hmm. and then flew, I'm not kidding you, the old Hong Kong um, British imperial flag from the legislature. Yeah. So, the, it, now that's more of a snub towards the Chinese than their former, you know, colonizers, for sure. Mm-hmm. But it's also a statement that, yeah, we preferred being ruled by the Brits compared to our ethnic brethren. I also don't think 
think you can say that 1.7 million people that are marching today all have the same Of course not, Sophia. I'm not saying that. Yeah, yeah, the people who broke into that building and did that, like, definitely have those views about, you know, maybe being a colony was better, et cetera, et cetera. But But there's, like, also, like, probably a a strong amount of anti-British resentment, you know, there as well. Well, if they're, so, so, and I'm not saying that they're like, oh, let's go back to Britain. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying (laughs) is indicative, it's illustrative of the opinion they have right now. It's not saying that, oh, yeah, Britain was awesome or whatever, though, ironically, that's part of the reason why they're so special and unique, and that their independence from China has only, their, their view of independence from the mainland has only increased over the years. And, like, an illustration of that, an anecdote, not data, is that they uh, flew that flag and there was only, like, 20 of them that did it, whatever, right? Yeah. I'm not saying 1.7 million of them are all trying to speak the kings and they want a pound or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. But the fact that that was so heavily publicized and popularized by the protesters speaks to the kind of message they're trying to send. And, yeah. you know, the headline of The Atlantic today literally was that Hong Kong cements its identity. It's not Chinese, it's Hong Kong. And yeah. that's but, crazy. Um, so to circle back a bit to the root of the, the current situation. Sure. So they, uh, so the bill was that uh, if a crime was committed somebody could be exported to China to f- answer for their crime. Yeah, it uh, broke a Chinese law. Yeah. Right. Um, seems like, if I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of someone living in Hong Kong, seems like a very much of a slippery slope mm-hmm. as to becoming Chinese again. Yeah. Uh, and I can see pretty easily like why that's really scary because people kind of... Well, people go get dis- disappeared in China. Yeah. That's the thing is that, like, Hong Kong's in this precarious situation where they have, quote-unquote, rule of law. Rule of law doesn't really operate in China. It's rule of the party. And so in Hong Kong, if you commit a crime or whatever, you have a court system, much akin to the British system. It literally is the British system. Um, but over in China, if you can be accused of something and go disappear off into a re-education camp, you know, and that's the thing. It's about breaking Chinese laws. So you might be a Hong Konger just fine, but maybe you posted a criticism of uh, Xi Jinping. That's actually sedition. You can be prosecuted for that. Uh-oh. Start, you know, extraditing and get, getting rid of potential uh, rattle rousers. And that's the thing that's crazy. One of the uh, leaders of the 2014 Umbrella Movement, Joshua Wong, was imprisoned multiple times for being in those protests. That's the thing that's crazy, is that these are the kind of people who, it's authoritarian regime, who imprison political uh, rivals and potential threats to their regime. It's not a free system. And so Hong Kong does not want to uh, join that system because their people have had a taste of liberty. Even if it's a small taste, it's still a taste of it. While the rest of the mainland is just more focused on, you know, prosperity and, like, you know, moving up in the world. So can either of you... um... And maybe Sophia, you could do this. Um, break down a little bit what the the government system in Hong Kong is right now, as it is separate from the Chinese system. I don't know too much about it, but I can tell you more or less what Drake. You know, Drake has already given a pretty good outline of, of what it is. So they more or less operate with with you know impunity from the Chinese mainland system. They do have their what is it chief executive yeah. that oversees the city. But um, doesn't necessarily have, like, too much power. They're still technically Chinese in the sense that, like, Hong Kong, whether or not it's been integrated, is technically part of China, you mm. know, for legal, for legal reasons. But they do have their own courts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Trying to think of, like, other examples in the world of how this might operate. It's sort of like the Vatican in Italy. Uh, less extreme, I would say, because technically the Vatican, it's, it's, it's like, sh- 
securely it's its own entity you know um italy doesn't have any sort of legal power there uh, but that's like a, i would say a similar situation um yeah. in terms of thinking about how autonomous hong kong is in china so is it like is it or is it not trending more toward democracy oh well well i mean <laughs> it is technically a do- democracy right now right the technically issue is that it, it won't be hypothetically uh, by 2047 uh, when it's supposed to be fully integrated, assuming the Chinese, like the mainland Chinese system, stays the same, which I expect more or less that it will. Um, maybe. Right, so we'll get to that later. There's yeah. like, some interesting stuff going on. Well, but, and, um, yeah. And then you add in, like, one of the one of the issues from the umbrella movement and beforehand was currently the chief executive is basically just handpicked by Beijing. Um, the Beijing literally got to approve who got to be a candidate. Okay. In the first place, so it's like, yeah, you have democracy, but like now we're gonna pick your candidates for you. Mm-hmm. That's already a dark thought as it is, and so now it's only quote unquote yeah. getting worse. And it's also interesting. So going back to the the identity thing, if we can for a second here, sure. And, and what I said previously in terms of like not all one point seven people have the same op- opinion about any one given thing, right? The matter of identity in this whole struggle, I think, is massively important. Um, and it's also because there are so many people involved and because the, the support for this protest movement, uh, while it's generally strong, you know, it's kind of it's kind of tentative. The protesters actually have to be really careful about the kinds of things that they do, the kind of cues to ideology that they give out. Um, so one thing that's that's happened is they shut down the airport in Hong Kong uh, briefly. I'm not sure if it's still shut down or if or if that ended. But they shut down the airport and a lot of people, even in, in Hong Kong, older people who weren't directly protesting, uh, were upset about it. Um, and so if they take too radical of action or if their language is too strong or if they're too violent, they might lose support within their own city for this. Because while there is a strong Hong Kong identity, Hong Kong itself is also a really developed city with like a varying political opinions, you know? Yeah. Um, well, and not only is it developed, I mean, of course, like the Hong Kong airport is the eighth largest airport in the world. Yep. Um, but uh, it also has like a strong tie to the markets. It's... Yeah, people are just getting scared for a cap for capital reasons. Like, yeah, and yeah. I, I think we can get into that in a, a little bit because this this can uh, be a rabbit hole real quickly. But um, I think what you're right is that the the protesters have to strike a delicate balance. So they took a couple hostages yesterday. Wow. Yeah. So the protesters um, took a couple hostages. One of which I think was at the airport was somebody they thought was an undercover cop. Because one of the big worries right now with the protests is undercover cops and people trying to instigate violence and basically make the protesters look bad. So they captured one of them, allegedly, right? But to the protesters' credit, they let them go and they uh, apologize profusely and they're trying to keep things relatively civil. But the issue with any protest movement is how diffuse it is. You have 1.7 million people out in the streets. Cool. You can't police them all. Pardon the pun. No, and how, I mean, how centralized can you get? No. Uh, as a pro- as a protest yeah. movement like that. I mean, we struggled with that in America, right? When Donald Trump was elected, even in Portland, right? We had people who were there protesting his presidency, and then we had people who were breaking windows of storefronts and like throwing Molotov cocktails places. Like, Which... how do you, how do you how do you govern that? Well, the good news is that that seems to not have been terribly the case so far in Hong Kong. I mean, that's not to say that there hasn't been vandal, uh, you know policemen's uh, buildings getting vandalized or whatever, sure. But so far, it's been relatively peaceful, all things considered. I think the other thing is that they are trying to... Like like you mentioned, like 
you know, shutting down the airport. Like, that affects people's lives, and that's kind of the point. So one of the yeah. things is that, like, I mean, particularly from an American perspective, we just haven't had protests like that, like, say, the Europeans do or whatever, where they're prepared to shut down a city until they get what they want. Right. To us, we're used to, oh, we'll... Rally in the park. We'll rally in the park for, like, a day and then Not go even. home. Like, well, like, for the first half of the day. Yeah, like, Americans, like... Like, the golden age of American protesting was, like, in the 1910s where people were dying because there was uh, Pinkerton uh, private detectives shooting, like, union w- workers. Like, that that was a long time ago. Right. So, in this situation, they are trying to cripple the city. They're trying to cripple the economy. They're trying to make it hurt. And, oh, by the way, all this is happening right as a fear of a global recession is going to occur. Uh, China just had its currency devalued. Oh, and by the way... In October, October 1st, is the 70th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party taking control and was supposed to be, you know, Mr. Xi's uh, crowning achievement. And, yeah, so it couldn't have come at a worse time for the Chinese regime. Did you mention the trade war? Oh, and the trade war, too. So, like, yeah. this is, this is uh, like, if, from a protester perspective, there's no better time to be making the quote-unquote final stand. Because, personally, if they aren't quote-unquote successful, which, I don't know, how we even define success in this particular instance. But if they're not, it's not like there's... There's this distinct feeling that this is their last chance, really. Like, if it's not this, then what? You know? And so, of course, the then what is the bigger question. You know, because, like, the thing is, there's various demands that are put out. Um, I mean, the then what seems to be becoming part of China again. So, like, there's... And that's supposed to be the end goal anyway. Like, in, well, in some ways, it feels like they're fighting off an, an, an inevitable thing right like, well yeah but if i was to say that legal documents like predict the future and that just because it's been written down it must be right you know this isn't nothing is set in stone but it's also like this is what's this is what was agreed to have happen and it's been in china's sort of line of sight that this will happen it's like all of their predictions for that region and for that market have occurred keeping that legal agreement in mind and so if things go awry you know at a certain point in time china will be incentivized to act and drake you can correct me if i'm wrong here you Mm. are the the economist and the chief uh game theorist here but it feels like these protesters and the chinese government are kind of in a weird game of chicken right now yes where they have to push something to the brink and intimidating enough both parties right they have to push something to the brink and be intimidating enough but they they can't swerve quote quote unquote they can't spoil what they're doing but there's There's more to it than that in the sense that you're completely correct in the basic game theory of it. But this is where actually I think the protesters got the edge. Not that it won't hurt. Is this. Is that either option for the Beijing government is bad for Beijing. Like unequivocally bad. So say for instance, um, Mr. Xi gives them various, you know, meets some of their demands. Like say more autonomy, for instance, get rid of the bill, or some of the craziest ones are like just independence, right? Which, no thank you, that's not going to happen, but still, right? Uh-huh. Say he does that. If he does that, the success of it is he avoids insane amounts of capital flight, which is the big worry because Hong Kong's the fifth largest stock exchange in the world and is essentially the port of entry for foreign direct investment. And oh, by the way, it has special trade agreements with the United States. Marco Rubio actually has a couple bills about that. Fun fact. Thank you, Republicans, I guess. Um, and what's so... No, seriously. Thank you, Republicans, I guess. No, no. So, <laughs> so essentially, like, the benefits of it is, oh, that also solves a problem economically because they already have a trade war going on, right? And they already have devaluing currency and there's fears of, like, literally fin- financial contagion within some of their national banks. Whoops, right? At the very least, they won't lose foreign investment, right? But the problem is, is that they, if he gives them what they want... 
First of all, uh, it tarnishes his regime. It also emboldens pretty much any other, like, um, separatist group. Tibet. Tibet or the Uyghurs, for instance. Or for that matter, Taiwan. Like, Taiwan's going to play ball. Perhaps out of all of those, the biggest... You know, oh, biggest biggest. question. Yeah. Yeah. And so, okay, so there's that. So that's not that's not a winning situation. That's destabilizing for China. Oh, but let's say he sends the tanks in, right? Say we have Tiananmen Part 2, right? Which is the, a legitimate fear. Right now in Shenzhen, there are troops lining up ready to rock and roll. And the problem is that, say he sends in the troops. If it's just to show up, then that won't change anything. The only point to use the troops then is to do what the police could not. Well, now you have a slaughter on your hand. It's being publicized to the rest of the world live. Oh, by the way, there are foreign citizens there who are just hanging out. You want a couple of Americans get shot up too? That's going to look really good, right? So you have foreign and direct investment would immediately pull out. Capital flight. That would basically depress the entire region, right? That's going to come out at the worst possible time for China economically. Oh, and then not to mention the international blowback. And here's the thing. China's been trying to develop a little bit of soft power, trying to say, hey, Belt and Road Initiative, we're going to go play ball for other countries. We're, we're like the nice guy authoritarians. Seriously. The idea that it's I mean, take... compared, to North, compared to North Korea, they kind right. of are. But if you send the troops in to slaughter a bunch of peaceful protesters... It's going to look real bad. Oh, yeah. The optics on that are terrible. And so what do you do? Those are literally, like, on a certain level, those are the two options that they have at this point. Yeah, and I totally agree. And I feel like, similar to what you're saying in that the protesters have a bit of an edge in that calculus, assuming that calculus is correct, which I think it is, but there's also the unknown unknowns, right? Right. Um, I think it's in the interest of the protesters to keep this at a low to medium burn and play the long game. Oh, yeah. No, I completely agree. If they can keep this up for months, they just... But not get too rowdy, right? Yeah. If you basically say, yeah, for half the week, every week, the city just doesn't work. I mean, it's crazy town, but, like, say they did that... That coming at the worst possible time for him, they'll have to acquiesce at some point. Or, and here's the thing, like, as a protester, here's, here's, the, here's the crazy game theory on it. Either way, you kind of win. Think about it. Say you get what you want. Well, cool, go go Team Hong Kong. And not only that, uh, go Team Freedom, because this is literally just self-determination in action. If we're all going to talk like we're liberals who care about democracy, this is literally self-determination. Like... Well, and I mean, we can even take the analogy to something very simple, which is Mm. like a toddler and a parent, Mm. you know, toddler wears down parent (laughs) to the point of acquiescence, you know, good for the toddler, I guess. Um, if we're, if we're saying the parent is the uh, authoritarian state of China, uh, China. Uh yeah. Yeah. And toddler gets a candy, which it's a candy that I think the toddler should have personally right. and the thing and is so does the toddler yeah so does the toddler and the thing is, is that for hong kong like this little actor that doesn't have a ton of power on its own if it's able to pull this one off it emboldens other people who are oppressed across the world like the the, the american me says oh this is fucking awesome let's go for it right right but but let's say the other option happens say you know fire and fury it's it's tiananmen part two they all get shot up it's really bad right you end up losing thousands tens of thousands of people whatever that signals to the rest of the world that, oh, China's actually the authoritarian monster that all those hawks always said it was, right? Cold War Part 2 is back on, I guarantee you. There would be no presidential candidate, Trump or otherwise, who would say, yeah, we're going to keep playing ball with the Chinese after that one. This isn't 1989 where, first of all, it was pretty well shut down and we were also, you know, 
Well, and I, so one of the articles that we read for, for this one, I believe this was in the, the Atlantic's article, um, Trump's foreign policy crisis arrives. Uh, we were talking about in the article, sure. president, presidents in the United States over promising things. Ah. Uh-huh. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? No, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. And that being a concern here. Right. Um, so Trump trying to say, like, because that's the thing, is that, like, Trump has not been exactly consistent on this Chinese policy. No. And President Obama, at one point, very, like, hands-off, kind of was, like, worried about overpromising, like, worried about getting involved, and was like, yes, Hong Kong, we support you in, like, free speech and, like, freedom of assembly, but was unwilling to get involved for fear of overpromising for, like, one of the previous situations that happened. Right. Because you don't want, like, like umbrella protests, for uh-huh. instance. Yeah, it's like, or... Because that's the thing, is that how does it, like, what's so crazy about this is that for a lot of foreign policy crises, America has an obvious in, whatever that in is. Here it's happening independent of us. And the question then is, for Mr. Xi is, does he believe Trump will, like, credibly commit if we do anything? And or... we don't want to do another Budapest. Right. Um... So, like, the thing is, is that, like, there's times when we've overpromised. So, like, Eisenhower, back in the 50s, we were like, oh, yeah, freedom, go team. And then when the Soviet Union marched into Budapest to crush some uh, protests, we didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And that basically, you know. Or under Bush, the, the Kurds, he encouraged the, the Kurds to, to take arms against Saddam Hussein. And then the U.S. kind of backed out. And it was yep. bad news. Yeah, Saddam. Uh, so, uh, I mean, that's the, the story of what we're promising. I don't know. And, like, it also, like, I think of all of, like, the times that we've, as the United States, we have supported human rights or democracy or whatever you want to call it, and then kind of backed out of it. Or even just, like, a human, like, humanitarian crisis. So, like, in Syria with the red line and the chemical weapons that Obama, you know, Obama drew that red line, the line was crossed, and we never followed through. And part of that is that in the 21st century, intervention in a weak state such as Syria or a very strong state such as China is really difficult. So, like, Drake says that he's pretty convinced Cold War, like, round 2.0 would happen if if China hypothetically cracked down on Hong Kong. And for me, the, the question would really be, like, I, maybe, but not because of human rights. It would be more because of an economic thing. I mean, I really don't think Ch- China can more or less treat its citizens however it wants to, and we just kind of have to deal with it. Because it's very clear we're not going to send troops anywhere, you know? What? You, uh, you, we're not going to send the 5th or the 7th fleet in? What? That's crazy talk. <laughs> no. And, and so, like, a Cold War, like, I mean, even in economic terms, I'm not sure that we can divorce ourselves from the Chinese or Hong Kong markets. So I guess the Hong Kong market might be crushed at that point in time. I don't think we can really divorce ourselves from, from China economically, even if we wanted to. You know, like, well, it's I'm, a... I'm not convinced that a Cold War would erupt just because China cracked down on Hong Kong. No, but it's a step along the way. We already, these, this trade war doesn't look anywhere close to resolving itself. It's already having an impact on China's uh, internal economy. And then you add this uh, powder keg to the mix. To me, it just it, it moves us along the path dependency towards a more Cold War situation than a further integration. We already see this on a technological sphere. So, like, for instance, the blacklisting of Huawei in America for 5G, mm-hmm. right? Uh, or how in China, American tech companies are basically getting the finger constantly. Um, newsflash, uh, Hannah and I have both been in China Google Maps doesn't work so well over there, right? And the thing is, is that there's this, this danger, or not even danger, the certainty that there's going to be, like, two internets. There's the Chinese internet and the rest of the world. Yeah. And the thing is, is that China's totally content for it. One of the things that was so spooky, like, anecdote here, 
um, and Hannah backed me up on this, is when I was in China, everybody's on their phones, everybody's hanging out, they have their own internet. But if you mention, oh, Instagram or, like, Western things that you can get via VPN, they just don't care. There's, well, and there, there's no, like, not that they don't care, there's just no ac- access. Access. Right. And so to them, it's like the, the thing that's kind of crazy here is that we're thinking from our perspective from social media, like the rest of the world, there already is a quote unquote second world in the sense of like the original Cold War. There's already a separate system that China runs and it's closest allies. Yeah. And some like personal examples, like um, my now husband and I were there um, uh, noticing how much more advanced in technologies like application to day to day life sure. has been going on in China. Than in America, and uh, wondering to ourselves, why isn't it not more accessible to tourists? Well, it's a way because, of keeping us out. Right. Exactly. And that was the conclusion. Because, like, it can... also enables them to have a surveillance state there, right? Exactly. The more technologically advanced anything is, the more prone it is to, for being co opted for various things. That's why smart fridges and smart cars and all the smart things people are worried are now like uh, worried about now is a cybersecurity risk because all of those things can be hacked, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, the, the Chinese government doesn't even need to hack anything, they can just do whatever they want, right? Yep. You have no legal bounds. But Uh, in our in our experience, it was as simple as walking into a restaurant and not being able to order because we don't have the proper access to the the technologies required uh, to read the QR codes or to download the apps. And to to use a lot of the apps, you have to be able to hook up a, a credit or debit card. But it has to be a credit or debit card source from mainland China. Exactly. And we're not gonna go open bank accounts in China so that we can go to a restaurant, right? Yeah, and it, it, it's those subtle so, social cues over there that show this is our system versus the others. And, you know, they got a billion, what, 1.3 billion people. They can kind of pull that off. But what that means on, on a net, though, is if there is going to be a decoupling, so to speak, as some people are saying, between U.S. or really the West and China's East is the word I would use, I totally believe it. Like, I, I don't think it's necessarily, quote, unquote, good, long, like, for the for the world economy for the two biggest economies on the planet to decouple. But I think that's actually the road we're going. Like, I remember 10 years ago, everybody thought that would be so interlinked that there would be no way of extracting each other. The irony is that Trump coming in kind of made that not happen. And there's a part of me that, like, the tariffs are terrible. Like, it hurts American farmers. It's a dumb policy, blah, blah, blah. But it is accelerating the great power conflict that everybody, every realist figured was going to happen anyway. Which, to, you know, the dark part of me says, okay, well, now at least we know what's up. I know, but I don't, I also don't want those, like, hard offensive realists to be right accidentally, right? Like, they're Oh, no, for sure. We have a bad actor in power, right? Right. Like, that's literally the only reason why. And they're all like, you know, I can can hear John Mearsheimer or Stephen Cohen or somebody, like, in in their office being like, hmm, yes, of course, this is what I predicted, you know? But it's sort of like, (laughs) that's like Mitt Romney saying that he was right about Russia back in 2012 when he was like, Russia's our greatest geopolitical threat. He wasn't wrong. He wasn't wrong, but he was right for the wrong reasons, if that makes any sense. No, no, totally. That's the thing that's so hilarious is that, like, all this, like, for instance, the Chinese authoritarianism or, like, the decoupling economies, all that stuff. It's, like, all those things that, like, felt kind of crazy to say, like, 20, not even 20 years ago, five years five ago. Five years ago. Yeah, five years ago. It was like, okay, sure. Like, I remember distinctly in college, 
I, I was reading a book called Cool War, and I, I was talking about it in classes, and people were like, okay, Drake, there's not going to be really a conflict with China. Get out of here. Like, come on. Now, meanwhile, like, we think about, like, the Taiwan situation, right? Um, or anything like that. I, the question, to me, the big question that's missing from, like, say, Democratic Party debates is, what would you do if China, for instance, uh, you know, took down Hong Kong? Or try to take Taiwan or anything like that. Those are the kind of Cold War-esque questions. Those are the kind of hot questions okay. I want to hear. So, and I'm sorry if this is di- divulging slash like going back a bit. Mm. Um, but uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. Oh, hit me. Uh, they've now started to talk about it as the new Silk Road. Oh. Quote, um, and 65 countries are involved. Jesus. And the United States so, wants to get involved. Like, we don't not want to be a part of it, right? Well, it, well it's so huge. Like, Yeah, you can't yeah. not be. Yeah. Well, my, then my, my, my thing is that that's kind of incredible to me is that as much as I'm giving China pro- problems here, the fact that they're ready to, re, to try and engage with the rest of the world, it reminds me of the United States in the late 1890s, early 1900s, uh-huh. where we were like, okay, we want to get into the imperial game. How do we do it? So we all already know, like, it's, it's old, old news now about, like, Chinese investment in Africa and the rest. But the Belt and Road Initiative, with them getting involved with all these Central Asian and European countries mm-hmm. and trying to essentially build infrastructure right. but use Chinese to do it. And that's what I was going to say is, like, it's, it's in the stage right now where it is the, the initial infrastructure is being built. Right. And so China's looking farther down the road, uh, no pun intended, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, for when those roads will be used. Right. Um, but and is willing to make that investment, which is amazing to me. Yeah. What's up, Sophia? Oh, I just wanted to get a, a, a word in about this. Um, you, we have this oft-repeated phrase in our podcasts and also just in our lives as IR scholars. It's all about the institutions. Mm. Um so, like, part of this whole Belt and Road Initiative, while it is, like, literally infrastructure, it's also, like, a club, right? It's also an institution of its own. Uh-oh. And it's not the only institution that China has been building, right? There's also the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. And that weird fake pseudo-NATO-like organization, the, the Shanghai Cooperation Council. Which is cute, called. let's be honest. Like, yeah, the like, SCC? That one is less effective, but the Asia, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank actually does stuff and is actually worth quite a bit of money. Right. right, and the Belt and Road Initiative, when it's completed, will transform literally transform the way the world works in terms of both geopolitics and economics. Right, and uh, so and so Chinese the Chinese ability to build institutions, as Drake was saying, kind of does mimic the United States, not necessarily in the late eighteen hundreds, but mostly like uh, post World War Two. Right. Well, I would argue it's so Sophia, I would argue they're not formal. Like the Belt and Road Initiative is not a formal institution in the sense that the IMF or World Bank is. I would say it's just new imperialism at its finest. Yeah, Hannah. Um, We also are in a time of institutional proliferation. Yeah. Sorry to bring it up. But But like, yeah, uh, it's still like it's still real. And so like these these institutions have to have some stuff behind them. To believe that they're institutions. Right. In like, order to be able to, like, rise to the top. So, at that point, everybody just calls themselves an institution for the sake of institution building. Like, the thing is, right. I'm not convinced Belt and Road is Bretton Woods 2.0. What I think it is, is China wants to, A, keep pumping up their economy that's probably slowing down, but nobody knows, and B, new imperialize. But what's different about it is that it has physical structure to it. Sure. So, many of the institutions that we're familiar with go in and do things. Sure. Uh, but they don't do things that are like so physically tangible right across such a large space 
and obviously done by the Chinese. Like, say, like the U.S. institution, oh, the IMF does some structural adjustment. Here's a loan. But it's hands off, which, sure. But, like, the Chinese are literally just doing what a colonizer used to do. Seriously. You show up, you build some shit, and then hopefully you can extract resources or political power from it. But they're doing it under the auspices of development. It's brilliant marketing. And the only thing I'm thinking about as an American right here is, oh, my God, how did they come up with that before us? Seriously. I'm not trying to say... Yeah, I mean, they didn't become... I don't think they came up with it before us. They came up with it as a response to U.S. naval power patrolling the oceans, right? Okay, yeah, that's fair. So, like, the United States, with its, what, 11 active aircraft carriers, has been more or less the world's police powers in terms of enforcing free and fair access to the world seas, which has been, on on the net, a global good for every country, right? Uh, we don't Says generally America. restrict access places, you know, I don't, I'm, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I can't. No, 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 yeah, no, we, that's our whole thing. Yeah, we try to make sure that things are free and functioning, and that's why activity in the South China Sea has been problematic in other places in and around the Philippines. I won't go into that rabbit hole. I think that this is the Chinese response to, like, a, two, a two-pronged question, which is, how do we improve our image internationally, one? And two, how do we get around the United States' naval power? It's right. not going to be by sea because we can't compete with them navally, right? It's going to be by land, and it's going to be through Eurasia, which is a, you know, just from a military perspective, really hard to deal with. Don't start a whole land, don't start a land war in Eurasia. That's a thing for a reason. Yep. Um, and also, like, the United States has no territory there. Nope. I mean, that's the thing that's kind of crazy about it is, um, like, like I, I would always argue that being a naval hegemon is always better than being a land power, because land power you always have... No, so, this is the fun part. So, I would argue the best hegemons have always been naval powers first, um, land power second. So, the thing is, is like, say, Germany wanted to be a hegemon, or France wanted to be a hegemon, or Russia, or whatever. They're all land powers, which means you're always going to have to rely on military force, usually. You're going to have to have large standing armies. You're going to have to deal with tons of different external threats all the time, right? And, yeah, you might have a navy, but sure, whatever. And historically, there's been plenty of land powers been able to pull it off for a little bit. But the longest-running hegemons usually have a naval component. So Britain, for instance, all about the colonies. Oh, massive fleet, you can never touch Britain. The thing is, if you're like an island nation or some, some ability to keep the bad guys away, I don't care if you have a bigger army. If you can't show up on the shores of Britain, who cares? I can still run circles around you. I can stop you from moving. I can do anything. I can, you know, like, this is how the Dutch, a tiny, 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 tiny little country, right, was able to be a big power for hundreds of years because they were a naval power first. And so the United States, I would argue, more than our big military, it's really our big navy. And that's the big deal, is that we control the seas and we control the air, which means we control commerce. And I don't think China can do that, so Belt and Road. I agree with yeah. this, Fia. And it's not to say that they're going to hijack it for military means, but sure. it's their way of more or less skirting the American question. No, right? no, totally. They don't have to deal with us, so they won't. Well, and, and as an American, I'm thinking, and this is something I was thinking when I was in Shanghai itself, I'm like, wait a second, why can't we do something similar? Right. No. And, and follow me with my, my crazy crackpot theory here is that why can't there be a presidential candidate? I don't care about the party that says, all right, America, like this is saying post Trump. Right. Because we've been isolationist for a couple of years. It's been pretty bad. Right. We see mm-hmm. the world already starting to unravel. I right. It. I, I know it. it sucks, but like we're literally watching it unfold right now. Um, say we want to get reengaged. We say we need to bring America back into the world to help people again, which means guess what? What we should do is, first of all, do sort of an American Belt and Road. What we do is say, we're going to put Americans back to work again. And we're going to do it abroad. And we're going to go try and help out countries that we care about. But we're already so infamous for, like, 
colonial type like well the, the, I, I i i'm already i'm already uh i'm okay. already intercepting that question keep going this is what you do so instead of saying like the chinese say oh we show up here we only send chinese citizens we only build it instead you do cooperative projects you literally say we're going to send american volunteers whatever it's going to be a like a right to work sort of situation where it's like we had the works progress administration back in the 1930s any american who wants a job to build something cool we send you to go work with local c- communities across the world who need infrastructure to the rest, that gives jobs to Americans, and puts American, um, not only in- infrastructure, but influence back into the world, you're helping out our potential allies, and it's a way to skirt the China question. Plus, here's the best part, from a political perspective, right? It employs Americans, A, and anybody goes, oh, that's neocolonialism or whatever, you go, are you trying to deny Americans good of paying jobs? I know I'm kind of joking here, but when we're trying to think about how China's literally doing the same thing, and we're trying to potentially fight a new Cold War, if we want to re-engage with the world, that's a potential option. Like the well, thing, and there's a way to do it that isn't so imperialistic. Of course, right? yeah. Like there's the we can, there's so yeah, you could send people abroad basically as like a super amped up version of the Peace Corps. That's exactly what I was thinking. Of being kind of imperialistic, but have it is sort of like a weird full right Peace Corps hybrid baby, where it's like kind of an exchange, kind of a diplomacy program. You know, like. Maybe these projects wouldn't employ 100% Americans. Maybe it would be 50% local, right. 50% that's, that's the That's the part I forgot. And, and the thing yeah. is, where, where I would target that, right, because we're worried about the South China Sea and the rest, send them to Indonesia, send them to Vietnam, send them to Malaysia, send them to all those areas in the South China Sea, or really in parts of Eurasia, where if we want to counter Chinese influence, you do it right there, and you do it to the walls. You show that, hey, American influence is good. American capitalism or liberalism or whatever you want to call it actually helps your people. Because yeah. right now, Speaking as someone who has actually done something like that with my Fulbright in Russia, which granted isn't technically Central Asia, but it's about as close as you can get without actually being Central Asia. Sure. They, they love it. You know, like they love having some kind of communication with a person that they may have never met otherwise before yeah. um, and are genuinely very curious. And maybe that's a that's a a quality unique to Russia and Russians. I don't sure. Know. Um, but I'm sure that that's like, a, you know, sort of a soft power thing that we could tap. Right. You know, um, Pete Buttigieg is like talking about doing something internally in America, like an amped up works uh, works project, whatever, to give a job. Yeah. Whatever. I mean, all he has to do is flip that internationally, and it's more or less what you describe. And I would love that. Hannah? I worry about, um, like, like, on the ground, Sophia, I am, like, I get what you're saying. But as, like, a larger-scale project, I worry about sending people places because I worry about... Uh, mm-hmm. And I know that there's a theory name for this, and I can't remember what it is. Um, but sending people in to do work. Mm-hmm. And then those people will eventually leave. Uh, brain drain? It, brain drain, kind of, but in, like, a, like an infrastructure-building sort of way. Oh, we build it where, in a dip. Right, yeah. yeah. And so, like, being able to sustain that and, like, also, like taking away the opportunity for the country that we have gone to to build themselves. Right. No, and I completely hear you on that. And I think the the original idea to a degree of the IMF and the World Bank to giving them loans was, oh, we give them money so they can build it for themselves. And economically speaking, that's smart. You don't want but like then, But then we we put these conditions, it's con, con, the conditionality right, 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 right. of yeah. it. And my argument is that you're right, but I think on net it's a better idea than not doing it. 
That's we just have to, be, have to be conditional. Like, right. Saying, that's conditions. That's a choice. And it's a stupid yeah. choice. It's only, it's only made things worse for the IMF, right? Right. right. That we don't have to do that. In Southeast Asia, the same region we're talking about, that occurred in the 1990s has occurred as a result of IMF austerity. Like, yeah. Which yeah. is just we silly. We don't have to do that, right? it, You know, it's silly. And that's the thing that really, really gets me is that we're basically, like, the thing about China, like, Chinese people are good people. Like, I, I've been to Beijing, I've been to Shanghai, not to be anecdote boy here tonight, but, like, seriously. But the thing is, we also have to realize the Chinese government and the threat they pose to the rest of the world as a challenging hegemon, if you will, even though they say they aren't, it, it, it is akin to the USR, USSR on a certain level. And I think what we're seeing in Hong Kong right now is an illustration that this isn't, like, a Western liberalized country. This is, this is a country that's prepared to send troops in. And... When it comes to, like, defending freedom abroad, if we want to be the quote-unquote America's room and do the right thing, I don't think this should be ignored entirely. But anyways, we've talked a lot. Let's do the final round, and then we can finish things up. And this is the arbitration round. For long-time listeners, name of the original podcast. But then we decided to start drinking more because, I guess, law school. <laughs> um, so, law guys. school. The world is, you know, the night is dark and full of terrors, but it's made all the better with some Pilsner. Right. Indeed. So, yeah... Yeah, go team. Um, so, here's the thing. Um, we go around the room. We say what we think is going to happen. We're going to divine the future. It's basically just punditry. And then uh, finish things off. So, uh, Hannah, do you, do you want to give your guess about how this is all going to spin out? Arbitrate. Um, well, my hope is that Hong Kong wins. I hope that Hong Kong extracts itself from China. And I know that's a lot, but I hope that that's what happens. Yeah. And I, I think that's what should happen. I think it would be better for the markets oh, if yeah. it did. I think while China might have to bite the bullet on this one, uh, I don't think that it's going to be any huge loss to China. I mean, it is going to be significant. Oh, sure. But I think that China has the capability of recovering yeah. from that loss. I think that Hong Kong's independence has been good, could still be good. Mm. And we could just, like, you know, part ways peacefully here. Right. Or, or just keep it at a pretty high level of autonomy, right? Even they don't even have to. They don't even have to do anything. All they have to do is like say, "Fine, we'll drop this issue, continue business as, as usual," and it, it does put off something to the inevitable, right? Because of that fifty-year agreement, but it's ultimately a headache for the future. Right, right, and that does kick the can down the road, but it's a more peaceful option. So, is yeah. that is that your is that your prediction? That's my prediction. Sophia, what do you think? I, I mean, I agree with Anna that I hope things work out for Hong Kong. I think it could go, I think it'll go, I think that the pivotal moment will be that October 1st sort of celebration of, of Chinese rule, uh, specifically mm. the Communist Party rule, because those events, those conferences, those co- like congressional whatevers that occur in China pretty, pretty regularly, they're really special. Mm. Um, and they're very significant, not just in terms of, of the state and the future of Chinese politics within the near future, but also what mainland Chinese people see on their TVs, right? It's mm. just hugely significant. So we'll see what happens on that October 1st date. Uh, mm. I, I really don't know. I think push comes to shove. If China is incentivized enough to crush Hong Kong, they will, yeah. right? They aren't, obviously, at this moment in time because they haven't done so yet. But all it takes is some careless protesting that gets too rowdy in Hong Kong or, you know, Xi Jinping getting insecure about the fact that these protests are still occurring over his crowning moment. You know, like all it takes is one single decision for this whole thing to unravel in a very catastrophic way. I, I'm not going to make any definite 
definite predictions about it, but I just, I think that specific date will become very important. Hmm. Well, I, I, I think that's, that's a pretty, um, measured response. And I think the, the October 1st thing is a good point to bring up is that's sort of the deadline on a certain level. If this isn't resolved by then, then there's the big question for me. I, I'm going to take the stance that this feels like a, uh, one of those quote unquote moments with a capital M geopolitically. Like we've had a couple years of American isolationism. We've had the world slowly unraveling a little bit here and there, far right parties going into power, so on and so forth. We're starting to see the global economy start to get, for the lack of a better word, a little bit screwy. And then all of a sudden, independently of all that, Hong Kong protests and the question of like liberal freedom, the whole nine yards. And something yeah. tells me this isn't gonna end prettily. I don't know. One thing to keep in mind is that China has, for the most part, been coasting pretty nicely. Like, Tiananmen Square happened, but that went away, and people have mostly forgotten about yeah. it or whatever. That was 36 years ago. 40 years yeah. ago. 40 years ago. They have yet to face a major headache like this. The United States have had, has had its own headaches in Iraq, wherever else, Donald Trump, you know. But China's been this smooth sailing. to be, like, the first major headache for China. Right. And my big question is, that, is this, like, there's a dark part of me that wonders, okay, I honestly think it's probably going to end bloodily, personally. Because I'm, I'm not just pessimistic. i just looking at Chinese history here eh, and really authoritarian history. And so for me, I hope things spin out. Like I would love the Hannah slash Sophia universe to occur. I would love for a, you know, for a semi-independent or really just fully independent, like, you know, China could just call, um, you know, Hong Kong, Chinese Hong Kong or whatever, and just have it sort of like a, a Monaco or a... Uh, or really, for that matter, a Singapore situation. That would be amazing. Go team. Not going to happen. I think what's probably going to happen is Mr. Xi at some point will send troops in and Hong Kong will become just like any other Chinese city. There will be a big diaspora of Hong Kongers. The Hong Kong Stock Exchange will fall the hell apart. And uh, we'll be entering a dark period of uh, Chinese and really world history. And I think that's just the direction things are going to go. I don't want that to happen. But I think that's what's going to happen. I hope I'm wrong. So anyways, on that cheery note, um, as we always do, thank you for uh, joining us for Pinot and Policy. I hope you were getting drunk along with us. I'd like to thank uh, Hannah and Sophia for joining me today and, you know, talking about the most depressing things in the world. I'd also like to thank Steph Reeves for being our fantastic producer and dealing with all of our mistakes. Um, you can listen to Pinot and Policy on any place you want to listen to podcasts, but, you know, hit us up on iTunes. You can also read and listen to more of our shenanigans on arbitrar.org. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again soon.